Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the AFCA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Cote d'Ivoire, and we're joined by Phil Carter, a former U.S. ambassador to Cote d'Ivoire and Guinea, as well as deputy of the commander for civil military engagements at AFRICOM. Judd, can you give us an elevator brief on U.S. policy towards Cote d'Ivoire? Sure. The United States assigned its first consul to Cote d'Ivoire in 1957, three years before the country's independence. President Eisenhower looked favorably towards the country's leader, Felix Houphouet Bonnier. According to one academic, Houphouet was Eisenhower's type of African, politically and economically allied to the West, in contrast to the way that Eisenhower thought of Ghana, Guinea, and Mali. President Kennedy, who really expended most of his energy on the Ghanas and the Guineas, remained engaged in Cote d'Ivoire. Actually, it was his brother, Robert Kennedy, who was the big fan of Houphoué, and he attended the country's first anniversary ceremony of independence. He later told JFK to recall the U.S. ambassador and replace him with someone who could more ably represent the United States in this important country. Houphoué, who had been a minister of state in the French government before his country's independence, believed he needed France support to develop his country. Unlike other African leaders, he really didn't play the U.S. off against the French. And in fact, one diplomat called Houphouet France's best friend in Africa. During his 33 years in power, Houphouet was a key confidant of many U.S. presidents. In addition to Kennedy, he met with Johnson, Nixon, and Reagan. He was staunchly opposed to Soviet and Chinese influence in the region. In fact, he was disappointed when Nixon established ties with communist China. While the United States relied on Cote d'Ivoire as an oasis of stability, Houphouet did meddle in neighboring countries, he supported UNITA in Angola, and allowed Charles Taylor to invade Liberia from Cote d'Ivoire in December 1989. Equally concerning was the issue of succession. As early as the 1970s, the U.S. government worried about what would happen when Houphouet passed away. When he finally died in 1993, his successor was Henri Bédier, and during the 1995 election, Bédier popularized the idea of Ivorite, or Ivorianness, as a wedge issue. This played into anger about the number of laborers from the Sahelian countries who worked in the cocoa fields. It also allowed him to paint his chief rival, Alassane Ouattara, as a foreigner. In 1999, Bédier was overthrown by the military. The military government then arranged for elections and barred most candidates, but to their surprise, longtime opposition leader Laurent Gbagbo won the race. The controversy around the election and the junta's unwillingness to concede sparked riots and more than 500 people died. Bagbo was installed as president, but his efforts at reconciliation failed and a civil war broke out in 2002. The United States, along with international partners, was very involved in trying to end the fighting and move the country towards elections. It supported a UN peacekeeping mission, while the French deployed its own troops to separate the government and rebel forces. In 2010, the country finally had elections and Bagbo's rival, Ouattara, won the vote. But now it was Bagbo's turn to refuse to step down. And the Obama administration closely monitored the situation. They affirmed Ouattara's election win. They worked with regional stakeholders to push towards a final result. There was 
considerable violence during this period. 3,000 people died, but ultimately Bagbo was arrested and transferred to the ICC. Just recently, he was acquitted and now has returned to Cote d'Ivoire. The Obama administration hailed President Ouattara's leadership, toasting the country's post-conflict economic growth. President Obama invited Ouattara to the White House in 2010. The United States, however, had become worried about growing extremist threats in the country, especially after an attack on the seaside resort town of Grand Bassam in 2016. In 2020, President Ouattara went back on his pledge to step down when his preferred candidate unexpectedly died. The United States avoided taking a clear stance. So Ambassador Carter, do you want to talk about a major success or failure? If you talk about the major success, it was what happened in that period of 2010-2011, where we stood our ground on the democratic process, where we looked at the situation, where having worked with the international community, the UN, our allies, our African partners, and clearly there was a free and fair election that was held there. The second round was free and fair. The turnout was some of the highest in the, on the planet at the time, nearly 90% turnout. And then, you know, the, the unwillingness of the loser to step down that resulted in ongoing violence. This is in a country that had been physically divided in two for almost 10 years, that had suffered economic decline for decades prior to all of this. So the violence that was there, it was sharp, it was painful. But in the end, I mean, the international community stood firm. The process by which we supported that election, where the United Nations was actively engaged, where we were actually inside the tent where the tally was taking place. So there was no question as to who won that election, despite any kind of machinations by the incumbent. That was a model that we needed to look at. Unfortunately, other elements of the permanent members of the Security Council don't want to review that kind of process again. But I think there's something to look at carefully there. It was a good intervention that resulted in a positive outcome. Economic growth rebounded. And so we were there for that democratic turn. And then we were there working with the international community for the economic rebuilding and the economic growth. So that Cote d'Ivoire ended up having some of the highest growth rates on the planet, trying to pull itself out of decades of uh, stagnation. It proved difficult. And there have been mistakes. I mean, the reconciliation process was poor. I mean, it didn't take root the way people had thought. And the reform of the security forces still leave, leave some question as to, you know, how much are they truly embracing their Republican role in terms of supporting the state. But politics has been dominated by three people, and those three persons are still there. And it continues to have the same kind of dynamic that's there. Hopefully, the economic success over the past years, despite COVID, there's been, still been positive growth in Cote d'Ivoire, which is remarkable. And, you know, the political transition that occurred in 2010, maybe there's, I, I hope there's, there's time now for the new generation of leaders to take their place in Cote d'Ivoire. I know that's an aspiration of President Watson. I know that's an aspiration for others. Um, to It's now time for the turning of the page, as they say in French, you know, turn that page and move to the next generation to build upon some of the economic successes that are there and to address some of the real challenges. A lot of attention has been pressed to you know, countries on both sides of its border, but I think we really need to look at Cote d'Ivoire as a linchpin country for West Africa. I mean, its economy is a major influencer for the regional economy. It makes up 40% of the GDP for the French West Africa. It's the second largest economy outside of Nigeria and West Africa. It has the busiest port in West Africa, outside of Durban, I think. It is a conduit for resources, for materiel and, and equipment and resources into the Sahel. 
It is a conduit for people from the Sahel to come in and to work. It is a diversified economy. It has a huge agricultural base. It has a small energy base that it uses for itself, not for export. It has a manufacturing base, the only manufacturing base outside of Nigeria and West Africa. So there's a lot to be done here. Even though it's, it's still developing, the democratic structures are there. It has a very, very vocal press, and it's in incredibly rich culturally. But it doesn't get, I think, the attention it deserves from the United States government. So, Ambassador Carter, thank you for all of that. And I think you've made very clear the argument of why Cote d'Ivoire matters and what should matter to this administration, whether that's the discussion around how the approach in 2010 showed that the U.S. government can galvanize around a democratic transition and peace and security when it wants to, whether it's talking about the vibrancy of civil society in Cote d'Ivoire, whether it's referencing sort of this need to turn a page in a country that has been run basically by the same three presidents and former presidents for, for decades, one of whom, President Bagbo, who has been acquitted by the ICC and has recently returned to Abidjan. And of course, the challenge of peace and security, where the southward spread of jihadi movements into littoral states in West Africa has you know, Cote d'Ivoire sort of at the edge of what are some really serious concerns. So when you think about what the Biden strategy towards Cote d'Ivoire, and of course, the region, as you noted, should be, and how to actually go ahead and implement that. Can you talk a little bit more about what you might actually do if you were running the show? And Judd, maybe you can chip in a bit too on, on how we might actually make that happen. I think we have a model already there. The MCC, Millennium Challenge Corporation's Compact with Cote d'Ivoire, one aspect of it is vocational training of the youth. One of the things they found when they were doing a survey of business and developing was that they needed a better pipeline for trained workers to meet the needs of the private sector. This is something that President Watcher has talked about in the past and that others have looked at. We need to build upon that. We need to go whole hog on that one, frankly. Let me be perfectly honest. I mean, I think a regional MCC compact centered in Cote d'Ivoire that focuses on the issue of vocational training for the youth with some emphasis on what we can do for women and girls, I think would be incredibly important. You know, Ambassador Carter, I, you make such a important argument about the centrality of Cote d'Ivoire. And I, I'm just going to kind of jump right into, I don't even think it's a big idea, but we have to engage with this country. As you said, that's not a big idea. That's just the reality of it. And what I would just advise folks to do is take all of the good things that are happening in Cote d'Ivoire that Ambassador Carter has mentioned, but also don't shy away from the things that are not going well, whether it's the issue that there wasn't someone who President Ouattara felt comfortable handing over power to, to any of the challenges. This is one of the most mutinous militaries in West Africa. And I think what's happened increasingly is that we want to take these countries and say, well, the Cote d'Ivoire is the model country. And Ambassador Carter used that phrase, but I, I think that you'd agree that there are problems here and we can have a more sophisticated policy towards Cote d'Ivoire, talking about the things that are working and not working at a very senior level. And it's the kind of relationship that we have with most countries outside of Africa, where we don't sort of give it this sort of really simplistic sheen because we think that it would get it through the interagency. Ambassador Carter made all the points you need to make about why the country is important. And there are going to be people who have negative points. And that's okay to incorporate that. And just I'm going to add one more thing about why Cote d'Ivoire is important and why we should be engaging with them now. It's, it's an Ivorian citizen who is the current chairman president of ECOWAS. 
this important regional organization. So Ouattara has both the influence in his own country, the fact that Cote d'Ivoire is so important, but also he's got this connection into ECOWAS. So a number of reasons we should engage. Don't do a simple argument. You know, give Cote d'Ivoire its due, its challenges, its weaknesses, its strengths. We want Cote d'Ivoire to say the same things to us. So with that, Ambassador Carter, we're going to talk about one of the things that's been really interesting in Cote d'Ivoire's history, which is football and sports diplomacy. Uh, many listeners may know about Didier Drogba, who was, is a famed footballer who played a role or attempted to play a role in fostering political reconciliation. I was hoping just very briefly you could talk about that and then maybe a bigger point about sports diplomacy. I think, first of all, do not ever underestimate the impact of football or soccer on society, especially around the world. It's not big here as it should be, but, uh, you know, give it time. And, you know, after the crisis, when uh, the shooting stopped and the country was trying to heal itself after this, this very difficult period in 2011, after the election in 2010, you know, there was, it was tough. It was tough. But the Ivorian soccer team, football team, they became an instrument for bringing people together in a positive way. They marshaled unity amongst the crowds. I, I don't want to overplay it, but it was an important factor in showing that there was a tomorrow for Cote d'Ivoire after the violence that had happened, that, you know, people could come together in that stadium and root for the national team and hope they would finally make it to the World Cup in a real, in a winning way uh, with all these excellent players. And I think, you know, Didier, he played a role in that. He tried to bring that forward, you know, and to the point that if you look at other efforts, like there's an American uh, NGO called Search for Common Ground. I don't know if your, your audience knows about them, but they are fantastic. They do a lot of work in terms of trying to deal with addressing community challenges. And one of the things they did while I was there was inc I encouraged them. They came out with a program called L'Equipe, the team, which is about a soccer team of opposing sides in different communities that when they came on the pitch and, and players came together, they were able to address uh, some of the social challenges that they faced. So that's what I think sports diplomacy can bring. It, it works in the social sectors. It works for civil society. It works on the field. It works in the media. And it's something that we shouldn't ignore. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks. <laughs>